Father, we're thankful that it is possible to say that it is well with my soul. We pray that if there is someone here who does not know what that means, that your spirit would show it to them. We pray that your word would go out this morning. Your word speaks for itself. We pray that it would find place in our hearts and that our minds would be receptive and able to remember these things. In the coming week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> about a month ago, I was with you and talked about the ideas of prophet, priest, and king. And the quintessential um, king in the Old Testament is King David. The quintessential priest who set up the priesthood that was started by his brother Aaron in logistical practice was Moses. And the quintessential prophet was Elijah. And the only Old Testament figures who are mentioned uh, more than Elijah are Moses and David. The third most mentioned person is Elijah. When we think of these men and miracles, and the Old Testament miracles, we might search our minds, what is a magnificent historical event, miracle? And one that comes perhaps immediately to mind is the crossing of the Red Sea under the direction of Moses in the physical redemption of the earthly children of God. And anyway, the, one that, the other one that comes to my mind is Elijah standing on Mount Carmel and calling down the fire and judgment of God to consume what was on the altar and the rocks and some of the people around to make a definitive declaration that Jehovah is the Lord, that Jehovah God is God. Elijah was one of the men of God, as prophets are often referred to. And as I was explaining to you about a month ago, the, the, the prophet and the character and the nature of a prophet is in strong contradistinction to a king. Kings often have to think about politics. To the extent that kings get overwhelmed and focused on politics and that they are human, they often fall into sin and into trouble. And if you are unfortunate enough to have a bad king, you have a terrible country. The prophet is there not to care about what he looks like, unlike the king. He is not there to care about what other people are thinking or saying about him. He is there to speak the mind of God, to reveal to God's people what the mind of God is in general and on specific issues. As a result of that, the prophet is often at loggerheads with the king in the day. And during the monarchical or monarchical period, which ran from about 1000 BC to 586 BC, 413 years or so, um, there is much to learn from the kings and the prophets and the interactions between the two. In terms of New Testament mention of prophets, the one that everyone can probably remember is mention of Elijah in the book of James, which is in itself quite a remarkable statement. Elijah was a man like as we are. And you know what I'm saying is no, um, I do not have that kind of cur cur courage. I do not have that kind of backbone. 
I do not have that kind of walk with God. I am beset with things in the Hebrews 12 sense. But, of course, James goes on. He prayed and it didn't rain for over three years. Powerful, powerful. That is our uh, direction toward Elijah in a key verse of the New Testament. The other uh, allusions to Elijah occur just before Hebrews 12 in that hall of faith, chapter 11. Women received the dead, uh, their children back from the dead. It's actually twice. Elijah and the widow of Zarephath, as I'll be talking about, and Elisha and the Shunammite woman. Both of these women received their child back from the dead. And in the first instance, it was Elijah. And I want to talk about that instance as well. I have researched um, over the past little while a little bit about prophets and Elijah, of course, and I have found that many uh, scholars and, 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 and commentators will be able to divide up his life into many phases, many phases, seven phases, more than seven phases. If you happen to own a Thompson reference Bible, there's more than seven. Um, seven it turns out to be rather uh, a neat arrangement. And this is what I'm going to do this morning. Three, the beginning, a great big middle, and the end. Just three. And my focus this morning, I think, is going to be what um, a philosopher would call existential. I would recommend to your reading a book on philosophy by a man named McGee, who's a prof in Texas, M-A-G-H-E-E, -E, no, no M-A-C, McGee, M-H-G-H, and he traces for us the history of Western thought. And what you find in the late 1800s is basically the bankrupting of human thought so that after hundreds of years of struggling with the physical versus the metaphysical, the material versus the immaterial, the situation remains unresolved and the basis for morality is still completely up in the air because a completely materialistic approach to things leads to nothing more than pragmatism. And as Ravi Zacharias has said, the problem with pragmatism is it doesn't work. We're left with a material view of things. Toward the 1800s, you have characters like Jean-Paul Sartre and Soren Kierkegaard. Soren Kierkegaard is from my late father's country. His parents were devout Lutherans. And this existentialism basically says, look, forget it. We can't figure it out. We can't resolve such questions. Therefore, live in the moment. That is all you can hope to do. Live in the moment. From a Christian point of view, from a sort of heritage Kierkegaard point of view, there's a lot of validity to that. From a Jean-Paul Sartre atheist point of view, it is another form, a more severe form of bankruptcy. Bankruptcy. I want to present to you today some thoughts about the life of Elijah and how it can relate to us. James says, you know, he's trying to encourage us to pray. And he says, here was a man. He was just like you. That means that you are just like him. 
I find that to be a surprising suggestion given the stature of this individual. That is a lot of stature to say that ordinary people can connect to it in some way. But there it is. What is the scripture trying to say to us? Um, so I'm going to go through uh, some passages and there is no PowerPoint presentation. This is the old school way. And in this uh, December's bulletin, there is my wife's email. She doesn't know that I was about to say this. If you would like to get these two pages, count them, two, of notes, you may email my wife. They are also in her hard drive, and she can bounce these notes to you, and all of these scripture references and the condensation of these thoughts, and that may be, prove helpful to you. When we first meet Elijah, so my three parts are the calling, the crises, plural, and the confrontations, and the clarity. The calling, a big part on crises and confrontations, and at the end, clarity. So let's start with calling. How does this man come onto the scene? He comes onto the scene so suddenly that the sentence doesn't even finish that explains what he is doing. That is, he is standing in front of a king. He's standing in front of an evil, evil throne. A very evil man. And it turns out, as you will read in the coming chapters, he's only half of the evil. He's backed up by even greater evil in the form of Jezebel. Now, we see that he comes from the east side of the Jordan River in an area um, called Gilead. There is, in fact, a place there called Jabesh Gilead. It's in between the Yarmuk River and the Jabbok River. One, the top one flows just where Galilee flows out, and the bottom one flows just above where it flows into the Dead Sea. In between those two rivers is this man's village of Tishbe, which we don't know where it is. Elijah the Tishbite. So if you look at 17.1, and Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said to Ahab, what? Come again, wait, oh, you, you got me there. What, this prophet appears on the scene and he's standing in front of the king immediately. And he says, as the Lord, live, the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. A pronouncement of judgment to an evil throne from the get-go. Immediately, this man appears on the scene and he says to this king, I stand, I represent, and I'm accountable to Jehovah. And you are so evil, and what you have brought to this country, which is Baal worship, is so evil that it is not going to rain here for three years plus. Interesting. How did this happen? I wonder what we think of this. You often hear, you know, sometimes the, the, the um, not to criticize missionaries or pastors and such, but you'll often hear people say, well, uh, you know, I got the calling. I got a calling to go into the ministry, and I'm not kind of disputing that. But I want to put it to you today that if you are saved, your calling is automatic. You are automatically called. You can be essentially on the scene as long as you are willing. God will prepare you. 
God has prepared you. You are where you are supposed to be, and if you will allow God to use you, you can be put to use immediately, immediately. This man came out of nowhere. We don't know, he's unannounced, uninvited, unknown, and he's confronting this evil with the reality and the holiness of Jehovah. We live in an evil age. Sometimes I think we are going to increasingly, in these days, be required and be expected to, we can expect ourselves to, need to take a stand. Are you ready? Are you ready to take a stand? Somehow, and we don't know the details, living on the far side of the Jordan River, this man living in an unknown village was prepared by God. I don't know your unknown village. I could tell you a lot about my unknown village and how God, you know, worked the circumstances in my life to bring me to a point of various kinds of, one might say, service. It was necessary for God to break me. It was necessary for God to deal with me, I might say, harshly. It seemed at the time, as chastisement sometimes is. But the preparation was there. And I think that we should be mindful of that and take example here from this man who had courage, he had backbone. God had prepared him and there was nothing stopping him from confronting the evil that his country had become in the person of Ahab. You know, to extend that a little bit to my own life as I have just been doing, I don't know how many of you know Farrell Drive, sort of like two streets over, three streets over. A young man with his brother Peter, this young man, wandered into this church in the summer of 1977, the Lord just having grabbed my life. And it's a funny thing. I didn't have a clue, I was so stupid. I didn't have a clue how to write a resume. I, I, I've been helping somebody with a resume. I tell you, we're talking about an extremely, extremely impressive resume, really. And in order to get a work-term job with Memorial University, I was going to Munn, you had to you know, write a letter and prepare a resume. Mine was so bad that I was the last person interviewed over like out of 120 people. I, everybody else had a job or gone home or something, it was me because my covering letter and my resume were so awful. Well, I didn't understand why, but God then brought me to a job so I could live with my brother, and my brother was subsequently saved about a year later. That was why. Talking about dear ones, I'm emotional this morning, as you know, because I haven't seen my son in three years, and he walks in the door without warning this morning. It's kind of very Eric. <laughs> In the best kind of way. Um, so when I start thinking about dear ones, I, my, my heart starts to maybe palpitate a little bit this morning. And, you know, in the ups and downs that followed, I look back and I see God's hand. At the time, I couldn't really see it. I can see it now the various things that happened, the various directions that things took, the things that God overruled wrong, doesn't matter, you're doing this, 
wrong. Doesn't matter, you're going that way. And then I'm over here and thinking, I should probably be over there by rights. This is a better place. Based on my mistake, I should be over there. Sure is good to be here. So this has happened too many times. My point for you this morning on that note is that you are no different. Do you think that you are here? Do you think that you are in your life and that it is nothing but an accident, that you are accidentally sitting here, that God had no hand in preparing you and in, in guiding you and in putting you where you are in your job, in your school, in your family, in your life, with your relatives and with your friends and all the people? Is this all just basically an accident? What an ungodly point of view to think that life is just sort of a series of accidents that, that result in a happen to be in a chair or happen to be in a pulpit or happen to be driving a truck, whatever it is, it doesn't matter, that it's an accident. Faithless, that's faithless. God is not like that. You are here for a reason. You are in your present position in life and in family and in all ways by design of God, by design of God. It is therefore possible that we can emerge. Elijah emerges. He's been being prepared. There is something he needs to do of national significance. And he's ready, and he stands up there before that throne. And that's the first um, item, thing, that I want to use to go through his life. His life is extremely memorable. The first thing that you can remember, uh, use, to use, that you can use to remember uh, the sequence of his life is in fact the word throne. Standing before a throne of evil, a very evil man with a very evil wife, and this man is sitting on the throne, I'm not sure where her wife is, She's pulling the strings in the background quite often. She, th these people have turned the country into an evil country, and these are supposed to be the children of God. They're supposed to have a national testimony, and they have exactly the opposite. It's horrific. And he's standing before that throne, and he says, it's not going to rain. Of course, if there's no rain, there's no crops, there's no crops, there's no food, people are going to be in a state of suffering instead of worshiping Baal. Right after that, he disappears. God, I'm, I'm sure that the, the king Ahab wanted to pull out a dagger and throw it at him. He, he just, Elijah's gone. And the next thing to think of is bird. You have a man taken off. In fact, in between the rivers, there is a little brook that we don't know about called Kareth. He's there. And um, the birds feed him. The unclean birds provide for him. And he drinks from the brook. So in his life, he's going from a position of exhibiting great courage to a position of hiding away and being provided for by God in a situation of deprivation. I don't know how much a bird can bring you in a run of a day, and I don't know about bending down and lapping from a brook very much, but this obviously isn't a banquet. It's part of God's plan, but here is a man who is undergoing deprivation. Do we as Christians think that we will never undergo or experience deprivation? 
I think that it would be a childish thing to suggest is that no Christian should ever experience a period of deprivation. Wondering what's next. Especially when the brook dries up. If God brought me here, now this is dry, now what? This, I don't even know, this doesn't even make sense to me. Sometimes life is like that. But God tells him what to do next. Interestingly enough, he goes to the father-in-law of Ahab, named Ethbel, to his neck of the woods in Lebanon to a place called Zarephath. The place still exists today. In fact, I teach a student who has that place name in its modern sense, Zarephindi, in her name, south of Tyre, on the coast of Lebanon. Go there. Go there. It turns out that they are not spared the famine. He goes there, and the next thing, throne, bird, is child, a widow's child. And you'll remember that this woman was in a, in essentially also in a state of deprivation. But the provision would continue to come. The oil would not run out, the meal would not run out, and they would have enough. This woman really doesn't know what to make of Elijah. She's basically afraid of him. But he comes in, the food continues to flow miraculously, they are provided for, it's not a banquet, they have enough, they're making it, and one day the child dies. The child dies. I wonder what Elijah felt. The woman is saying, in spite of the fact that the food came because of him, Elijah is saying, uh, the woman is saying to Elijah, rather, the widow of Zarephath is saying to him, what have you done? My son has died because of your presence, because of my past sins. It's an old idea, isn't it? I wonder what he felt like. This man, you know, existentially feels many things. He goes through a period of courage. He goes through a period of deprivation. He goes through the agonization. I love children. The child died. His heart is probably half broken. He feels in some sense responsible, even though he knows he's not. She thinks he is. And he goes, and you will remember that he lay down on the child three times and prayed for him. And then he came down and gave the boy back to her. <laughs> Resurrection. Resurrection. We then come to the, the, the period, a little arrangement there. Okay, the, the showdown, the big showdown, Ahab. It's mediated through a man named Obadiah and his people. The big showdown, Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel, pretty high. And we all know the story. They pour water, they sacrifice, the prophets of Baal are cutting themselves, blood going everywhere. Baal, the god of fertility and nature and crops and all of that, he can't, Baal can't bring one drop of rain down from the sky. And all this gross stuff is going on. And then Elijah prays a simple prayer and everything is consumed and the rocks melt and the altar is gone. And then the next symbol is a sword. He takes 450 of them with the help of God's people and slaughters them. Does that, do you find that horrible? That men who are in league with Satan in this dispensation of the law should be, de should be executed, should be put to death doesn't surprise me in the least. I am not the least bit surprised that that 
is the outcome for these evil men who are serving Ahab and Jezebel. You would think that the entire nation would turn back to God. That doesn't really happen. So we have thrones, birds, dead child, fire, sword. And the next one is, I love this. He's praying that now that this showdown has been won in favor of Jehovah, that it would rain again. James, pray no, no rain, pray rain. This man has power with God. Do you have power with God in your prayer life? And he's sending his assistant, it's check, check for clouds, not yet. Pray, 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 check for clouds, not, not yet. So many times. Finally, the guy comes back and says, I see a cloud the size of a man's hand. Isn't that cute? I love that. I, how, how do you even, so far, what's that? Anyway, small. Like, that's it, it's coming. The rain's coming. This man knows. He knows. He knows what's happening. And the rain comes back. Wonderful. Now we find out something very, we see something very kind of inexplicable. In chapter 19, verse 3, what does he do? He must have felt euphoric at the victory and great vindication. God is God. All the other stuff we've dealt, we've, we've, we've dealt a mortal blow to them. But Jezebel raises her head and he runs from Jezebel. This man who stood up to this and did all of this runs from a woman. He's mad. He's running in fear from Jezebel. And he, 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 <laughs> he can't cope with this. And it's even worse. The, 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 the strangeness of it is even more strange in that he, he finds a place, you know, he heads for Horeb, and he says, take my life, God, it's, it's done, I'm done. I, I uh, pff, just, I have nothing left. Um, and he's also kind of in pity, pity party mode, I guess. He says, I alone am left. It's factually untrue, and God will show him that it is factually untrue. But this is his frame of mind. After these victories, he's now running from a very evil person and he's seemingly controlled by fear is that possible for us is it possible to kind of for us to kind of lose our marbles and base our actions on fear we are human sometimes fear grips us fear gripped this man and he kind of lost it he went away and hid in a cave and pitied himself and was ready to die as far as his relationship with God was concerned. And then what you'll read is that God showed him some um, miraculous natural phenomenon that ended with God speaking to him quietly in the breeze, in the little breeze, after the... the the earthquake and the wind and the terrible things that were natural phenomena that God caused, there's this still small voice setting things right. So it's not the amazing natural phenomena that actually have anything to do with anything. 
It's the still small voice of God that turns things around. And Elijah actually bucks it. He goes, yeah, but I'm alone and everything is bad. God just says, look, come out here, come out the cave, the end of the cave. Look, 7,000 people have not bowed the knee to Baal, that God tells him this. Oh, I'm not alone. You're not alone. We're not alone. For one thing, God is with us, and for another thing, there's plenty of people who are with us who hopefully are also praying for us. God says, for all his sort of moaning, I see in 1913 in my notes, God says this, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? You're away in a cave. I'm alone. There's only me. I might as well die. What are you doing? This is ungodly behavior. In point of fact, there are 7,000. And this is what you will do next and tells him what to do next. Sometimes you just need to get shaken, right? We need, we need to be shaken up, smacked in the face, and, and ask the question, what am I really doing? What's the point of this? And stop doing that. And that's what happens. He, I think, in that cave was an ancient example of clinical depression. Combination of fear and... Um, let down, adrenaline let down from the big events, and pity. And God brought him out of it and got him busy, and he got busy. And you can read in the intervening chapters, it ends, it starts in 2 Kings 17 and goes to, uh, 1 Kings 17 goes to 2 Kings 2. 2 Kings 2 is the end of, of, of what we see of Elijah. And what we see then is this wonderful phrase, you know, we've, we've said Jezebel in the cave, and now where are we? Chariots of fire. Don't you love that? There's only two people that were translated in the Old Testament, Enoch before Elijah, and now Elijah. That's it. No, didn't die. No, Moses has no known grave, but Enoch and Elijah have no bones on this planet. And Elijah is taken up in, these, in this chariot of fire in after he has designated Elisha. And what, what emotion would you guess at? After all of these things, what emotion might you guess at? Well, that's a good question. Uh, exhilaration and joy? I wonder what's going to happen in the rapture when you are being taken up, if the Lord comes while we are alive. What amazing exhilaration and joy will be ours to be taken up to meet the Lord in the air if he comes. You know, it's 2,000 years since he left. And I believe that the time is running out. The time is running out. We see changes in society that are absolutely frightening. And we better, I would say, get our act together, admit that God has not just randomly dealt with our lives, and stand up and be counted. The other attitude against saying that the faithless attitude, the saying that everything is accidental, I, don't, I can't make head or tail of my entire life, I don't know what I'm doing, that's a very faithless attitude for someone who's a believer. The exact opposite of it is everything is set in stone, can't do a thing about it. There's a, a well, when the, when the Americans were fighting in Vietnam, 
one of the things that they noted was that philosophically, the Buddhist hyphen communist is completely fatalistic in his approach to warfare and, well, I'm probably meant to die and I'll just run into the machine guns and die. I mean, I'm just, it's just fatalism. Buddhism, communism are both leading to a combined fatalism. Fatalism. Well, that's the kind of thing that leads from the idea that everything is set in stone, can't do a thing about it. Everything's not accidental, it's all preset. Can't do a thing about it. Don't think that way. That is a terrible way to think. God does not want you to think that way. It's not the right way for the believer to think. I think both are incorrect and inconsistent with the very concept of faith. And I'm out of time, and I'm at the top of page two, and I just want to talk about what happens in Luke 9 and Matthew 17. It's described for us, and it's under my heading, Clarity. We've seen crises and confrontations, plural. And now, he's gone. Elijah's gone. Gone? Where's he gone? Well, as you know, on the Mount of Transfiguration, the Lord Jesus communed with his Father, and two people came to be on that mount with the Lord Jesus, Moses and Elijah. Isn't that amazing that they would be brought out of wherever they are. We read in Hebrews 12, being encompassed by a great cloud of witnesses. And they are brought to this mountain. And Moses, in his actions on this earth, was very concerned about where is the territory of God? Where is the promised land? Let's get in it, let's take it, let's claim it, and live there. What is the promised land? Let's have a proper promised land. Now Moses is standing on a mountain and he's shown that it's not about the land. It's not really about the land. It's about redemption. Redemption. Elijah, before he was taken up in the chariots, one man has said he did not finish well. A man who comes to that point in his life of that state of, of mind and heart has not finished well. I'm not sure there's more that happens there before the chariots of fire, but Elijah's brought down and he has shown redemption too. He has shown that the work of God is in men's hearts. He has shown that redemption is being brought to all mankind. He never had that concept when he walked on the earth. By analogy, I would say that what we wish sometimes that we had is more clarity than God is going to give us while we are here. The walk of faith, by definition, means that we don't have the big picture. We don't have complete clarity. Moses and Elijah got some additional clarity compared to their lives on earth. And that was a wonderful privilege for them to have and to receive. What about us? Sometimes I think we wish, you know, I, I, what I need is, sorry, what I need is to be in heaven and to sort this out. I want to, I want to be able to look down and unravel the spaghetti 
and um, then I'll know, and then I'll act properly. But since I'm not completely aware of all of God's purposes and plans, well, I don't know what to do then. I, uh, I guess I can't do anything. I'm, I think I'm useless. That's a very wrong attitude. God has prepared each of you, each of us, to serve him. He can and has, through his spirit and through his word, given us the power to serve him. We need to realize that we can be part of that and not worry so much about getting complete clarity. He will lead us. He will lead us. It's 12 after, and I'm going to read one of the three verses that have, have been very precious to me over the years, and it is Hebrews 12. Wherefore, 12.1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. The capital A author and the capital F finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. May the Lord bless these few thoughts to your hearts this morning. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you that your word is able to minister to our hearts. Help us to hold it precious and to take it in. We pray that as we depart, you would enable us in the coming week to be your people to show backbone and to show courage and to recognize that we are where we are for a reason. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know whether we might have time for one verse of moment by moment, um, Matt, as I indicated to you over coffee. One verse of moment by moment. Dying with Jesus by death reckoned mine, living with Jesus a new life divine, looking to Jesus till glory doth shine, moment by moment, O Lord. I am thine, moment by moment I'm kept in his love, moment by moment I've life from above, looking to Jesus till glory doth shine, moment by moment. Oh, Lord.